Welcome to the Nutrition Unpeeled podcast, a place where hungry minds discuss all things evidence-based nutrition, fitness, mindset, and healthy living. We're your hosts, registered dietitian and nutritionists, Courtney and Hannah. Let's dive in. The information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only, so always speak to a healthcare provider such as a registered dietitian who can work with you directly about your unique healthcare needs. Hello there, and welcome back to the Nutrition Unpeeled podcast. Today, Hannah is joining me to talk all things food relationship. Uh, But before we jump in, Hannah, what's something yummy you ate in this past week? Okay, I had to think about this for a moment, but then it just, you know, came to me. It is the beginning of September, so Starbucks has their um, pumpkin drinks back. So just like any basic gal, I (laughs) ran out and grabbed a pumpkin cream cold brew. So that was definitely the best thing um, because I've had now, I think, maybe three of them, but they're delicious. So that was the best. Yum. And you're wearing an orange sweater right now. You're definitely giving off fall vibes. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What was the best thing you had? Well, with it being September, it's the season where my mom's garden is flourishing Mm. and she's gifting me many zucchinis. Anyone I feel like (laughs) who grows up with a gardening mom just knows that zucchinis tend to be abundant. So she's been giving me quite a few zucchinis. So I finally found a recipe that I love using zucchinis. And it's actually a recipe that my boyfriend... Dean, his sister, introduced it to us. And it's like a ground beef uh, with zucchini and grated carrot Mm. and ginger and garlic. So really good flavor. And then we make a coconut rice and scoop it all up on lettuce wraps. So yeah, it's like crunchy, a little bit sweet, savory. Very good. Delish. Mm -hmm. So at Vitality Nutrition, each of the dietitians works with a wide range of clients with all kinds of different goals, but each of us has a unique area that we work in as well. And Hannah's area is specifically working with people with eating disorders, disordered eating, or improving their relationship with food. So Hannah's really the perfect dietitian to be um, sharing more about this topic of how we can improve our relationship with food or signs that our relationship with food does need improving. Totally. That is definitely an area that I focus on. I love talking to different people about food relationship and disordered eating. And, you know, something that's really interesting is that dieting and talking about food is just so ingrained in our culture that sometimes our food behaviors or our food thoughts um, may seem actually quite normal, Mm -hmm. but they actually might be impeding with our quality of life. Um, And, you know, sometimes it can be hard to decipher what's normal, what's not. And so today we're actually going to dive into five of the signs that your food relationship might need a little bit of work. Um, And there's lots more, but just five. And then also we're going to touch on three different things that you could do today if you're like, hey, you know what? My food relationship does need work um, and it's a place to start. Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you said about talking about dieting or bodies being very normalized in our culture. And oftentimes when I'm working with a client and something's coming up with their body image or even their food relationship, I'll often ask them, what's the earliest memory you have of thinking about your body in a negative way or thinking about food in a negative or restrictive way? And oftentimes they're quite young, which tells us that some of these thoughts or behaviors are ingrained at a young age and we have to work backwards to start improving our relationship moving forward. And with that of being so young, when so many of these influences are starting to shape our relationship with food and our thoughts around our body, it is really this 
much harder and sometimes more intensive work Mm -hmm. um, than maybe we are expecting it to be, right? Because it's something that we all talk about, we all need to do, Mm -hmm. we all have to eat, we all live with our bodies. Um, But it can be something that actually it's really helpful to have extra support with, Mm -hmm. um, which is where I really find it's great working with people one-on-one. Yeah. Yeah. I would say whether that's a dietitian or a therapist, likely both. Um, But I definitely agree. Knowledge is important, but it's not enough to have the knowledge and then make the change. There's more to it. Um, Peeling back the layers of the onion, so to speak, and having support in that is really important. Without further ado, let's jump into five signs that your food relationship might need work. And as I said before, these are just a few of the things that sometimes we will see that are a bit of yellow or red flags. Um, And there are lots more. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest ones that I see is black and white thinking around food. Um, So black and white thinking is very common in a lot of different areas, but one of the easiest ways to kind of see this is when people think of foods as good foods and bad foods. Yeah. So Hannah, can you give an example of what that might look like in someone's food relationship? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll use a kind of simple example here, which would be, you know, um, a salad is a good food Mm -hmm. and then ice cream is a bad food. So the salad is a good food because it is maybe low calorie Mm -hmm. or we look at it and it's a food that we associate with Sometimes even somebody who is a certain body size might eat that food quite Mm. often. Um, And then a bad food is a food that, you know, is, quote unquote, a treat Mm -hmm. um, or it is high sugar, high fat, high salt. Um, And so having these labelings, what often happens is it can be a little bit sneaky and we might not think anything of like, oh, well, an ice cream is bad for Mm. me. Mm -hmm. So me saying it's a bad food, that doesn't matter. Mm. But what we see how that influences food relationship over time is that when we do something that is good, Mm -hmm. we feel good. Mm -hmm. When we do something that is bad, we feel bad. Mm -hmm. So when we are labeling a food, well, that ice cream is bad. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I am doing something that is bad or I'm Mm -hmm. doing something that is wrong. And then I am bad. I am doing something that is wrong. That is where you can start to see this spiral of shame and Mm. guilt around food just grow and grow and grow because we are looking at food in this dichotomy Mm -hmm. of if I do something, I am kind of morally good. I ate the salad. I did what I should do. If I have the ice cream, I'm bad. I did something Mm -hmm. wrong um, and I should feel shame for that. Yeah. Yeah. And embodying those feelings of shame and guilt. Mm definitely isn't supportive of our health. Yeah. And I think that that is such an an important thing here is that some of these things that we might talk about, even saying like, well, this is good, this is bad. Um, Or, you know, you can even get a little bit more gray language and sometimes even labeling things as um, junk, you know, though this is Mm -hmm. junk food or this is clean food or whatever. It's Mm. the same idea of we're separating foods into something that's positive, something that's negative, and then how this can influence our own perception of ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so this can then go into sometimes like the more like nitty gritty, I guess, of Mm -hmm. where did this start? Um, This is not something that we 
are born, you know, categorizing foods with. Mm -hmm. It is something that is learned. So Mm -hmm. like you said, Courtney, right? Lots of times it's from a very young age and Mm -hmm. it's a lot of family influence Mm -hmm. often um, that kind of comes up when we talk about where does food relationship start and where does this labeling or categorization of food come from? Mm -hmm. Any tips for parents who are listening to this episode and considering how they might talk about different foods with their children? Absolutely. So one of the most simple ways to help with the language around food at a young age for parents would be to label foods for what they are. So just calling a food what it is. This is a banana. This is ice cream. This is cake. This is chicken. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of kind of affixing our own personal or cultural moral perspectives Mm -hmm. um, on a food. Yeah. Yeah. Even the word treat, like it's so Mm -hmm. harmless, but it's like, oh, you know, ice cream's a treat, cake's a treat. It already starts to put that food on a bit of a pedestal. It's a food that we don't have often. It's really special. And, and I think the word treat seems pretty harmless, but it might mm-hmm. still even be better to say we're having ice cream. Yeah. We're having ice cream because it's a hot summer day and we all decided to enjoy it and we like ice cream. And then moving on with the next food choice, whether that's a balanced lunch or supper or whatever that looks like for the family. Absolutely. Yeah, I mm-hmm. love that. So the second sign that is a bit of a flag that your food relationship might need work is that when you eat alone, your food choices look significantly different than when you eat with other people. Mm. So what would be an example of that, Hannah? We can think of a few examples here. One would be if you only allow yourself to enjoy certain types of foods. So to go back to our first point, potentially foods that you label as bad um, or junk foods when you are alone. Mm. So this really signifies that there is a huge level of guilt or Mm. shame with eating. And so sometimes we'll like talk about it with clients and they'll talk about it as secretive eating, Mm -hmm. right? So they hide their wrappers or they'll only order food if they're home alone. Um, This might be when binges happen more often. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, this other piece of this could also be that there is a huge level of anxiety around eating other foods or eating foods, pardon me, that are prepared by other people, whether that be at a restaurant or mm. a family member, when you don't have eyes on the food, um, that that is really influencing the way that you feel about the food or, you know, your ability to enjoy or eat. Yeah. And I would say that need for control could really be another rabbit hole to go down, so to speak, because I see that come often, come up quite often with clients as we're seeking that control over food for whatever reason. Usually it's deeper than just the food is something that is very challenging for them. Absolutely, for sure. And, you know, I think what's important here, too, is to understand that there can be shame in both overeating Mm -hmm. and in restriction or undereating, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, as we talked about, that there is a lot of normalization of certain dieting behaviors in Mm -hmm. society. But that said, there is also a lot of judgment around Mm -hmm. food or it can Mm -hmm. feel like perceived judgment around Mm -hmm. food. And so really just when we are thinking about eating around others, if that is causing a lot more anxiety than eating alone or Mm -hmm. it looks a lot different when you eat alone versus, oh, I have to go eat with, you know, Sue or, you know, my partner is actually eating with me today. So, oh, I better like not order the thing I really want because what will they think? That's a pretty big red flag that there is some work to be done on food relationship. So a third 
sign that your food relationship may need work is that you use exercise as a way to compensate for eating or as a way to justify eating certain things. Um, This is super common, particularly in kind of the fitness community or Mm -hmm. even with athletes. And I'm curious, Courtney, if you have something to share on this topic. For sure. So it definitely comes up in the sports nutrition world, whether someone's identifying as an athlete or just someone who is very active and maybe more in that fitness space Mm -hmm. of enjoying going to the gym or, or being an active person. Um, And I would say one example of this that I've personally experienced, but I've also seen with clients is even the fear of taking a rest day Mm -hmm. because they don't want to reduce or they're afraid of reducing their energy expenditure and how that might influence their body weight or how much they're eating um, and using movement as a tool to compensate for what they're eating or feeling like that compensates for what they're eating. And so a red flag that I notice is never taking rest days, working out seven days a week or an active recovery day being like, you know, a a 10K light jog. Um, And so really making sure that with exercise, we're, we're taking rest days and we're trusting our body cues on those rest days as well, knowing we might need to eat just as much for recovery mm-hmm. and, and that's okay. We don't need to compensate by exercising to burn off that energy or those calories. Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. I think to kind of round that point out too, is that, as you said, we see this with athletes. We also see this with people who, you know, wouldn't identify as athletes. Um, But is that, you know, your body is not a perfect math equation. Mm -hmm. So this idea of, well, I ate this 400 calorie piece of cake. So I'm going to have to, mm-hmm. you know, burn an extra 400 calories. Like mm-hmm. I'm getting flashbacks to mm-hmm. like Pinterest pictures. I think yeah. I saw when I was like 12 years old, mm-hmm. of like this much Halloween candy is this many burpees. It's yeah. like, okay, that's <laughs> yeah. not how our bodies work. Yeah. Um, and as an incredibly like slippery slope to have not only a terrible relationship with food, but actually a pretty terrible relationship with exercise too. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I feel so disconnected from the metric of calories burned, like yeah. on a treadmill or a machine that I forget that that data is even there and that people are poten- potentially interpreting it as accurate information or inf- information that should then impact how much or what they're eating. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So definitely a bit of a red flag here if you are finding yourself thinking, if I eat X, then I need to move X. Or, you know, if I move, then that means I get to eat Mm -hmm. X. Yeah. One of the fourth signs that your food relationship might need a little bit of work is a bit of an odd one, um, but it is if you think about food a lot. So, Courtney, do you have an example of what this might look like? Yeah. Well, I kind of think of it in two categories. The first being that need for control, Mm -hmm. which then comes with, you know, planning what you're going to eat next, really being vigilant in terms of, you know, what you're going to be eating through the day and making sure that fits with whatever rules or parameters you've set for yourself. It could be counting calories either in an app or in your head. Mm -hmm. Um, So that control piece where you're thinking and you're planning would be a red flag. But I would also say there's the red flag of being overly food focused because you're under fueled and your Mm. brain is is telling you we need more. We're not nourished. Like think about food, eat something. And so that might also make a person food focused because whatever they're doing with their approach to 
to food isn't adequate and they're not meeting their physiological needs. Absolutely. Yeah, that is such an important thing here that is often overlooked, which is, again, when we are such a food focused society, it can seem normal to always be thinking about food or talking about food. But something that I ask clients often will be, what percent of all your thoughts in a day do you think are surrounded by or surrounding your food and your body. Mm-hmm. And I will hear often like, you know, percentages upwards of 70, 80% mm-hmm. of all the thoughts that I have in a day are about food, about what am I going to eat? Should mm-hmm. I be eating this? About my body? How is mm-hmm. it looking? How can I change it? What am I not happy with? That is not something that is improving your quality of life, mm-hmm. right? And what is something that you said, Courtney, that is so important that we cannot overlook is that this is often a huge red flag of being undernourished. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's actually really interesting studies, um, one of them being like the Minnesota starvation experiment, which talks about or essentially had people well, had men under eat for a certain period of time. These men had no previous experience of disordered eating thoughts or restrictive thoughts. Mm. Um, And what they found is when these men were strategically, quote unquote, underfed for a long period of time, all of a sudden they had incredible um, like anxiety around food, a lot of food thoughts. Um, They were obsessed with the thought of food. What could they eat? When could they eat? Even when they were able to eat the amount of food that they were supposed to eat again. Um, And I mean, as problematic as this study was, I think it is really fascinating to show how powerful physiology is when it comes to also how it influences our mental health or our own thoughts. Because if we are not physically nourished, we know poor concentration, um, having low energy, poor sleep, um, irregular menstrual cycles, um, digestive upset, Mm -hmm. all those things will happen, but also our anxiety and often depression or low mood around food and outside of that is hugely influenced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've even had clients and I experienced it myself when I was um, undernourished um, do very strange things, things that you might not think are related to underfueling, but they are. So the strange things can be watching YouTube videos of people Mm. cooking and baking or looking at cookbooks and your brain is just fantasizing about food. You're maybe not allowing yourself to eat it, but you're engaging with content that's food related. I see that happen quite often with clients. Totally. And so I'm so glad you said that because it is something that I will see um, both in people that I work with private and then I also work in inpatient with eating disorders as well, um, that there's this obsession or fascination around food, but anything that's not eating the food. Mm -hmm. So baking is actually Mm -hmm. a very common, obviously baking is not disordered in itself, but Mm -hmm. um, if you always will love to bake food or be around food, but you yourself won't eat it, you'll Mm -hmm. give it to other people. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you said, watching YouTube videos, um, always your Instagram feed being all like meal ideas or what I eat in a day, but things that you would actually never do yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a pretty a pretty big red flag that probably we've got some work to do in the food relationship department. Mm -hmm. The fifth sign that your food relationship might need work that we're going to talk about today is that you feel that you have poor willpower around food, especially poor willpower in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that I think we all hear from clients all the time is, mm-hmm. you know, 
I can, and you're going to see some of these other red flags pop in in my language here, I can be good um, all day. And then after 5 p.m., I just completely lose all my willpower. And then I turn to all the junk food Mm -hmm. um, or I feel completely out of control. Mm -hmm. This goes into what we had touched on in the previous point, which is if you are under fueling Mm -hmm. and if you have mental restriction or mental barriers around food, you are very likely going to set yourself up to then overconsume mm-hmm. certain foods. Yeah. Um, so this is something obviously we talk about a lot from a physical standpoint mm-hmm. as far as fueling your body. And so I don't know, Courtney, if you want to give a little, you know, tidbit around our ever famous blood sugars and how that can influence our choices throughout the day. Yeah, well, we always joke that blood sugars have to come up in every yeah. episode because the <laughs> understanding your blood sugars and supporting them is truly so, so important. But before I specifically talk about blood sugars, I want to talk about a concept that's related that I find sometimes fuels the underfueling during the day or in the morning, which sets people up to then overeat in the evening. And it's this natural rise in cortisol that we all experience in the first part of the day. So cortisol, we often hear of the, the bad hormone, the stress <laughs> hormone, and to much definitely is um, potentially harmful, but it's also a hormone that wakes us up and makes us feel alert and energized. But if we don't eat and and we don't fuel in the morning, that cortisol just continues to rise and rise and it'll blunt appetite. So people will genuinely say, I'm not hungry in the morning, like I don't want to eat. But sometimes one of the best things we can do is actually challenge ourselves on that and start eating in the morning to start the day and make sure that meal, as well as every other meal and snack, um, is designed in a way where our blood sugars are supportive. So we're not spiking and crashing and we've eaten enough to be sustained for, I would say, three hours or longer. So that looks like building a breakfast or a meal around protein and fats and carbs, maybe even fiber. So you have a mix of nutrients that will keep you satisfied and energized for longer and prevent those crashes or dips that might then set you up to feel like you don't have control of your appetite. Absolutely. And so something with that, you know, with that feeling, I think that's an important that you have that, that you said that word, right? That feeling that you don't have control. Yeah. Um, that often then that will lead to back to our first point, which is the black and white or all or nothing thinking, Mm -hmm. right? So, okay, crap, I don't have, you know, I'm going to dive into the drumstick box. I don't know. I have drumsticks in my freezer. That's why I'm thinking of it. Um, A drumstick box tonight. And, you know, now I'm being bad and I don't want to do this. So Mm -hmm. what I'm going to do is I've already like screwed up today. um, So I'm going to eat the whole box. Mm -hmm. And then tomorrow I'm going to start fresh and I'm going to be good, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote good. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you get into what, I mean, I would say is the last supper mentality mm-hmm. a lot. And we see this a lot. Okay. These promises to ourselves that never come true, which is, okay, after I'm done this box of drumsticks, I'll never eat drumsticks again. Okay. Mm-hmm. After I eat this bag of potato chips, I'm not going to have potato chips in my house again. Mm-hmm. And What we are doing there is we are setting ourselves up Mm -hmm. um, to overeat Mm -hmm. whenever we have those foods. And you can see how this just becomes a cycle of like, now I eat these chips. I think that they are bad, um, but I overate them. Now I feel bad about myself. Now I'm going to promise myself that I'm never going to eat them again. And then inevitably you're going to eat them again, Mm -hmm. Um, especially if you're under fueling or you're saying like this food is something that's off limits. You're going to want it more. Surprise, surprise. And then you just get into this terrible Mm -hmm. cycle Um, and it can feel 
incredibly dis heartening and again coming to this willpower piece it can feel like a personal failing of some people don't eat a whole bag of chips but I can't stop myself and Mm -hmm. that means I have poor willpower and it's just this vicious cycle yeah and it's probably not your willpower it's and and I think you described like the mental restriction really well Hannah where when we say we can't have something we want it more but then I think there's that physiological piece too where people then skip a meal or they under eat mm. or they don't eat enough for breakfast the next day and then it's just a vicious cycle of I'm actually physically hungry yep. and then I overeat in the evening and then mentally I haven't allowed myself the foods I like or I've been thinking about the foods I shouldn't have and then inevitably eat or overeat those foods. Totally. Yeah. And so we're going to dive into these tips right away but here is a big thing. If you overeat the night before that does not mean you do not need to eat the next day. It's still You should still start your day with your regular breakfast um, because if you don't, you can see that cycle of what Courtney was just sh- sharing, which is essentially a restrict and then binge cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I describe it to clients as a pendulum. If mm-hmm. it swings hard one way, don't let it swing hard the other way because that's what fuels the cycle. So overeating and then undereating, the undereating fuels the overeating. So we have to break that that swing and start living in the middle ground. Absolutely. So now that we've gone through five of the signs that your food relationship may need work. We're going to talk about three things that you could start doing today to improve your relationship with food. Um, These are just a few things. There are many things. And sometimes, you know, as we said at the beginning of this podcast, it is more than just having knowledge or doing a few exercises. Sometimes it is that one-to-one support with a dietitian that's specializing in food relationship, or also many times alongside with a counselor who can Mm -hmm. really dive into some of that deeper work. Mm -hmm. An exercise that I like to get clients to do that you can do on your own is to write out some of the food rules that you may follow. Mm -hmm. Um, So Courtney, I don't know if you have an example of a food rule and then I'll try to go from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a common one um, would be if I eat after supper or after 7 p.m., then I'll gain weight. Mm -hmm. Or if I eat an ice cream, then I'll gain weight. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. So those would be ones that commonly come up for sure. Um, And so what then I will do after getting clients to write out some of their disordered thoughts is something that we call reframing. Reframing is something that we work on with clients in a lot of different aspects um, of nutrition. However, this is something that is so imperative when we are talking about improving our food relationship things that we now have learned as facts or Mm -hmm. automatic thoughts Mm -hmm. to something less harmful. Mm -hmm. Um, And and an example of this, you know, with one of the disordered thoughts that you gave or food rules, which would be if I eat ice cream, I will gain weight. A reframe to that can be super simple and it can just be factual, which is no one food will make me gain weight. Mm This is something that will absolutely feel like a lie (laughs) Um, if you are struggling with your food relationship, Yeah, Um, which that is something that, you know, I think is important just to disclaim because a lot of this stuff can feel sometimes a little fluffy um, or it's like, okay, great. I wrote out these food, these food rules and I wrote out things that I absolutely do not believe beside them. Yeah. 
And that is where something that um, something that called neuroplasticity comes in and that I do quite a bit of education with um, clients around. Yeah, I'd love to hear how you use the science of neuroplasticity in this context. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm no neuroscientist. So if anybody's listening is, don't come at me if this is <laughs> not 100% right. Um, but essentially, the best way to think or the way that I kind of explain neuroplasticity is just this idea of how we learn, yeah. right? So we know we learn through repetition. Yeah. So the reason we know two plus two equals four is because we probably had flashcards when we were little or we did mm. mad minutes if I don't know if they still do that. Mad um, minutes. <laughs> <laughs> to learn something through repetition, right? And so this kind of idea of things like our neurons that are firing together will wire together, right? Mm-hmm. So that's something that we will we will hear. Um, this is something that's going to happen with any learned fact or behavior. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about something that is learned such as this food will make me gain weight or this food is bad, The amount of times that we have probably looked at a food and had that exact thought, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of times, so many that it is not even something that we consciously are thinking, oh, I looked at this food and now, oh, I have this thought. It is automatic when Mm. we see this food that we are now having this negative thought. Um, And so really this idea of neuroplasticity is... We can, just as we can learn something, we can unlearn something and we can learn something different. Um, the brutal part about this is as adults, your brain is a little bit harder to unlearn and learn things than it is as a child um, because your brain is more developed. That said, it is going to take a lot of repetition. So something that I will challenge people to do is when they have those reframes that they do not believe is every time, this is mentally exhausting, but every time you catch yourself looking at a food and thinking that food is bad, I want you in your head, out loud, whatever it is, to then say your reframe. This food is ice cream. No one food can make me gain weight. Whatever that reframe is. Again, as you do this over and over and over again, you are actually creating a completely new thought in your brain. Mm -hmm. So that when you do see that food or you do have that experience, your automatic thought is no longer, this will make me gain weight. This is bad. I'm bad. It is either almost nothing or it is, this is ice cream and it's done. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say there's the thought piece, but in many cases, there's the actual action as well of perhaps eating the food. Um, And that can take a lot of courage to get started with if it's something you haven't allowed yourself. So again, I think that's where working with a dietitian and a therapist is really Mm -hmm. helpful to have that support because I think it does take a lot of courage to Mm -hmm. reframe these thoughts and then start doing new things. It's unfamiliar and it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. The second tip, I guess, or, you know, action piece that you could do to start improving your food relationship is to eat regularly throughout the day. So this is something that, again, we have other podcasts on about what does full, complete meals, how does supporting your blood sugar work, and how is that going to be beneficial? Um, But as we talked about with some of the red flags, if you are physically undernourished, I would argue you have lost the game on food relationship. Mm -hmm. And so this is something that comes up a lot. Um, This is something that is well actually researched that when somebody is undernourished, they're actually not able to engage in kind of other therapeutic um, avenues to improve their food relationship. Mm -hmm. 
because they're kind of functioning from a fight or flight or their caveman brain mm-hmm. is taking over and food and eating regularly and having their body nourished is the only thing that can be focused on. Mm-hmm. I talk about that a lot with clients when we're working through emotional eating. Mm-hmm. Um being like we can't even really work on the neuroplasticity piece of of choosing new behaviors when you feel a certain emotion if you're not nourished like mm-hmm. for example with a client if I've identified you're not eating regularly or you're not having that snack you need let's do that first yeah. so you're actually in a position to then challenge the behavior or form those new connections in your brain mm-hmm. absolutely and so that is where um you know then to kind of maybe take a little bit of like that you know clinical or pathological approaches, if somebody is very undernourished, mm-hmm. the first step of care is always refeeding or re-nourishing them mm-hmm. before you actually even step into any of the therapeutic food relationship, you know, I guess, emotional work, mm-hmm. because their brain literally is not at a point that can take in that information or do anything with that information. Um, and so you know, I will say there's kind of two avenues we go through with food relationship work. One is we look at the food that you're eating and making sure you're eating enough and fueling your body. And then the other one is going to be, you know, more of that emotional food relationship work or thinking about your thoughts, working on your behaviors, all of that. Sometimes they can happen at the same time, but oftentimes you do need to have that physical nourishment before you can actually even step your toes into more Mm -hmm. of the emotional or higher up stuff. Yeah. And I would even say like, even if you're not clinically undernourished or underweight, like I know for myself as a woman and I I truly believe women are are different than men when it comes to food and the approach they need to take is different. If I haven't eaten regularly and I haven't had my snack, I will not be rational. I will not think rationally. I will be very emotional. My boyfriend knows this too. I think many women can relate. It's just not a good situation. And so um, as to bring it back to Hannah's point, eating regularly throughout the day, I think is so key for many reasons, but definitely food relationship. Um, and might even require challenging some of those food rules. You know, if you can't eat till noon because yes. you're fasting or you can't e- eat after 7 p.m., then you might be challenging a food rule as you're trying to implement the tip of eating regularly throughout the day. Totally. And that is where they those two kind of paths or those two areas absolutely start to come together. Mm-hmm. And that is an awesome example, Courtney, of Actually, we can do, we can be challenging thoughts, challenging disordered behaviors um, with also nourishing ourselves at the Mm -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. The final strategy that we're going to talk about today to start to improve your food relationship is taking a break from food and body focused behaviors. So this is something that is somewhat nuanced because this is going to look very different for everybody. Um, But when we are really when we have identified that our food relationship our relationship with our body needs work having some of the focus that we may put to it taken away actually can be very therapeutic mm-hmm. so this might include things like if you are tracking your food on a tracking app deleting the apps or taking a break from those apps mm-hmm. um, if you tend to use the scale on a very regular basis and that is influencing the way that you are feeling about your body um, or feeling about yourself even mm-hmm. um, stop using that scale hide the scale I have clients who put in a card in their car trunk because they are actually quite compelled to use the scale because it is such a ingrained habit that they have. Um, 
Two of the other ones would be to reduce body checking and the time in mirrors, uh, the time that you spend looking at mirrors, mm-hmm. not that you're in mirrors. Anyways, um, <laughs> and so this is actually a really interesting one that I have recently had a personal experience with, which is I had a bit of like a, a realization of, you know, oh, like my my body relationship is actually quite good or my body image has been good or I'm not really thinking about my body um, because, you know, we all think about our bodies. We all have our own work to do, even people people who do this work for a living all day. Um, But I couldn't realize or, you know, pinpoint why I felt that I had improved my body image or why I wasn't thinking about my body as much as I maybe was even six months ago or a year ago. And I realized that I think for me, it was that I stopped going to a commercial gym. So Mm. I stopped working out in front of mirrors multiple times a week for, you know, an hour a day or whatever it is. And just the reduction of how much time I spend looking in a mirror has like significantly decreased the amount of thoughts I have about my body, Mm -hmm. Um, which is quite interesting and is actually something that like I in theory knew would be true, but I didn't even know I was like doing it and I wasn't doing it intentionally, but it definitely did help. Yeah, that's super interesting. I experienced that in reverse where mm. when I started working out, I started in a CrossFit gyms and a gym and there are no mirrors. Mm-hmm. And then later went to a commercial gym and was surrounded in mirrors and definitely noticed the impact that it had on my body image. Um, and then now I'm working out at home and I do have a mirror, but I feel like commercial gyms are just different. There are a lot of <laughs> a lot of mirrors. <laughs> mirrors. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I had another client who was working to reduce body checking and she mm-hmm. had a mirror in her house that she moved. Mm-hmm. And then after moving it, realized whenever she walked by, she would always look at that yeah. spot. And she's like, oh my gosh, it was just a habit knowing that mirror was there, check my body, yeah. walk down the stairs. Um, so Yeah. Totally. Yeah, Yeah, that is it is so interesting. Again, like, I mean, I I don't want this to make it sound like never look at yourself or get dressed in the dark. Like, right. Like we we can go too extreme and be avoidant around things. And that's not good either. But, you know, as you just shared, Courtney, with your client. It was habitual for her to look in that mirror. The habit of her looking in the mirror was just automatic. And then, you know, I mean, I don't want to place any narratives around this client, but then potentially like that is then oh, here's an opportunity for me to criticize myself because you know what? We're all pretty good at criticizing Mm -hmm. yourself or, hey, oh yeah, that's a reminder I don't like the way that my arms look right now or whatever it is. Simply by removing something from her environment, she was able to decrease that behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another one that I would add to the list for in terms of like taking a break from food or body focused behavior is actually content and podcast. And we touched on it a little bit earlier about the obsession with maybe food and watching cooking videos or or baking, but I see clients maybe taking in a lot of health-centered podcasts mm-hmm. or Instagram content or TikToks or whatever it is, and it's just either fueling more rules or conversation around food or it just has them thinking about food or their body. And so taking a break from that content, whether it means listening to completely different yep. podcasts in a different um, area or maybe just not listening to content at all could be a, uh, an important step step to take at least for a period of time. 
Totally. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of like the social media detox or, yeah. you know, like detoxing around things that you know are bad for you. Um, and that is something that can, you know, what we talked about in that first point, which is identify some of those food rules, but also some of those disordered behaviors um, mm-hmm. that things are like, you know, that might be triggering behaviors. And it might be like, oh, I look at these Instagram accounts or, oh, I listen to these podcasts and I'm thinking about this all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That concludes our first of possibly many food relationship podcasts where we looked at five of the potential signs that your food relationship may need work and three potential things to start working on to improve your food relationship today. As we said, this wasn't an exhaustive list. Um, There are so many different things that could potentially be impacting your food relationship and how your food relationship can impact your quality of life. Mm -hmm. And if any of these things resonated, I think it is definitely something that um, can be helped with some one-on-one support. Yeah. So if clients are interested in some one-on-one support, Hannah, Mm -hmm. how can they work with you? Absolutely. So we will always start with doing an initial meeting where we're going to do a bit of an assessment. We're going to get to know each other. I'm going to, you know, probably interrogate you in the most friendly way possible (laughs) a little bit. Um, And then always coming up with a plan as far as what you're comfortable with, right? It's always a collaborative approach. Food relationship is so unique to everyone. Mm. Even though we know some things are probably common threads, it's still a very unique experience. Um, And so meeting where you're at where you are at is so important. And then really from that meeting, we will do follow-ups. And Mm. so I find for different clients, sometimes they need some different types of follow-ups, but usually some of that, pardon me, usually having frequent follow-ups and then sometimes spacing them out as clients find that they feel more and more confident in their work. Yeah, for sure. And we do have a couple different programs that clients can work through. And that's really something that we can match you to. Mm -hmm. Depending on the frequency of follow-up you'd like, we can help you decide which program is the best fit for you. Um, We do have a 12-week coaching program with very frequent follow-up. And we have other options that can really be built out to whatever you need specifically. And I do always like to mention to clients, check with your insurance. Mm -hmm. Many people have coverage to work with a registered dietitian. So it's great if you do have some of that insurance coverage to get you started with some one-on-one support. You know, I also work with quite a few parents now who have identified and maybe worked on some of their own food relationship things, but they want to make sure that they are building the most um, positive or even, you know, helpful environment for their kids to have a healthy relationship with food. Mm -hmm. So that is definitely also, you know, an area that I love working and connecting with individuals as well. Thanks for spending your time with us. To further fill your plate, follow us on social media using the links in our show notes or visit us online at vitalitynutrition.ca. And as always, we welcome your ratings and reviews wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay fed, stay moving, and stay well. Produced at Sound Lounge by T-Bone.